episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the PAUSE platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this month, August 2021, we take a deep dive into the topic of human-animal interactions in relationship to animals and human well-being on the PAUSE platform. And today, I'm delighted to welcome Jeff Hosey, who is an honorary professor at the University of Bolton in the UK. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Welcome to you too. It's, uh, thank you for inviting me. It's very nice to be talking to you. Yes, very much looking forward. And of course, you know, people who are listening and know all about human-animal uh, human interactions and, you know, books and articles that you have written, they are, of course, excited to hear more of your stories. But, you know, new students and others might be listening and they're wondering, who is Jeff Hosey? So could you start with a very short introduction to yourself? Yes, of course. Yes. Short introduction. I'm Jeff Hosey. I was lecturer at what was then Bolton Institute of Higher Education until the early 2000s. And then it became the University of Bolton. And I ended up as principal lecturer there and then took early retirement. And since then, I've been very happily retired, pottering around doing bits of research and uh, generally enjoying myself. And uh, luckily, I've managed to persuade the university to award me the title of honorary professor, uh, which means that I still have a link with the university. I still can use them as my uh, sort of business address and I still have access to their online library and things like that. So I get a lot of the perks of being a, um, an employee without being one. So I don't get any pay. They, uh, they can get some sort of credit from having me if they want it, but, uh, but that's about it. But it's, uh, it's very nice still to be associated with them. Um, still there 15 years after I took retirement. Yes, and sometimes when we talk, you say you're, it feels like you're busier uh, even, you know, ab after you're retired, <laughs> you continue to do a lot of research and, of course, you know, chapter book writing, articles <laughs> published. So maybe you can talk a little bit also about how did you, you know, roll into studying animals or animal welfare? Uh, well, the animal goes back a long, long way. And uh, I suppose like most of the people that I know with that work within the animal business of some sort or another, we, we started getting interested in animals a long, long time ago. Uh, I was interested in animals from very early on. I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in animals. Even as a little child, um, I was interested in animals and we used to go sort of pond dipping locally and I knew all the animals in the pond. I knew all the birds in the garden. Uh, my mum and dad used to take us, me and my sister, every year to um, Bristol Zoo on an excursion. And uh, and I just loved it. And I knew that I wanted to work with animals when I grew up. Um, but I had no idea what. I didn't know what was available. I knew I didn't want to be a vet. Um, but what else was available, I don't know. 
Um, but I specialised in biology uh, at high school and then did zoology degree at university. And uh, that's when it dawned on me that there were jobs to be had in places like the universities and some of the some of the research organizations and so on. So I decided that that was what I was going to do and uh, maximize the amount that I could work with animals. The animal welfare stuff came later, to be honest, because when I started doing research as an undergraduate, um, it was general purpose mammalogical research. I saw myself as a mammalogist. And I did research on um, wallabies at first and then moved on to, to do zoogeographical studies in um, Eastern Anatolia and then did a PhD on deer feeding ecology. And uh, when I managed to get the job at Bolton, it was as a behavioral biologist. So I had to very, very quickly learn a bit of behavioral biology and convince them that I was their man. And uh, somehow that worked. And uh, all of a sudden, I had to start teaching behavioral biology, sometimes to biology students, sometimes to psychology students. And the animal welfare work really, really came from that. So I was quite late into the field in some respects. But uh, I found it a, a very fascinating and worthwhile field to work in. And uh, it's brought me into contact with a a lot of brilliant people and give me a lot of uh, fabulous experiences with animals. Wonderful. For those listening and might not be familiar with some of these fields, can you talk a little bit about, you know, behavioral biology? What is it, you know, what is the field of behavioral biology? Well, behavioral biology, the, the sort of modern study of behavioral biology, I suppose is a sort of amalgam of two different disciplines that went before. Uh, one of them was ethology, which really is the sort of originally the study of instinct. It's the studying that was set up by people like Tinbergen and Lorenz uh, in the early and mid middle years of the last century and was concerned with looking at the sorts of behaviors that animals do, which are more or less inborn. They are evolved in the animals. So they involve naturalistic behaviors like courtship displays and aggressive displays and things like that. But at the other side, you have the tradition that came through with what we now call comparative psychology, which is looking at animal behavior from the point of view of looking to see what it can tell us about human behavior. And the main thrust of those sorts of traditions was to look at the uh, ability of animals to learn and to extrapolate their learning ability to human learning ability. And sometime around about the mid 70s, these two disciplines started to come together a bit more and they were joined by then a third one, which was also an evolutionary one, which at the time was called sociobiology uh, and then became behavioral ecology. And that really was looking at um, the evolution of behavior from the point of view of functionality, where why, why has this behavior evolved? Um, what are the costs of doing this behavior? What are the benefits of doing that behavior? And uh, over the last, I suppose, 30 or 40 years, we've been able to amalgamate all those different traditions into one global behavioral biology that looks at the immediate causes of behavior in animals, which is something like the old ethology, 
why the behavior is there, which is something like the old sociobiology, and how animals can modify it in their lifetime, which is something like the old comparative psychology. So essentially, behavioral biology now looks at all of the aspects of what animals do, why they do them, what their function is, what their causes are, what their motivations are. And it gives you a much more rounded and much wholer sort of approach to the whole study. So um, that, that's about the best I can do to explain it, I think. But it, uh, it encapsulates uh, all of these different approaches to the study of animal behavior. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of people listening, students or people in care professions that want to evolve or start a career in animal behavior and welfare. And perhaps you have some suggestions for them on, you know, steps they could take to achieve that, either getting degrees or moving up into various positions like uh, academia or working in animal uh, care or conservation. Yes, I mean, there, um, there, there are more career options available with animals now than there were like 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, if, if anyone is interested in the sort of formal aspects of um, behavioral biology, and what I mean by that really is things like doing research on it, then I think an academic career is the, the only realistic option for doing a lot of this stuff. Um, because of the professionalization of research over the, over the last 40 or 50 years, <coughs> oh, excuse me, um, it's become a lot more difficult for even gifted amateurs to be able to contribute to the global research effort. It's very difficult for somebody that doesn't have a university affiliation or an affiliation to some kind of research institute to get their papers published. And it's very, very difficult for them to get grants to do things. So for anyone that wants to do a, a research-based career, then, then going through the university system is, is the way to do it. And nowadays that generally means doing a higher degree, something like a master's or a PhD. Uh, but there are lots of very, very nice careers that don't involve that kind of technicality. They, they still involve getting qualifications of some sort or another, um, but not necessarily so strongly academic. So working with animals in zoos, for example, uh, working in the, um, the, the charity sector with voluntary organizations, um, conservation charities and so forth. Um, there are ways into those. And uh, if anyone's interested in doing things like that, uh, I would suggest that they, um, they look to do the appropriate qualifications. And there are loads of universities and colleges now that do those qualifications but also think about doing some volunteering. And uh, no matter where you live, you may have a zoo close by, you may have um, an animal organization, a, a rescue center uh, or, or some such thing close by. And most of these places are very willing to take on volunteers. And that gives you the hands-on experience that, um, that employers look for on your CV. So there are plenty of those sorts of uh, opportunities available. And look at the websites as well of some of these organizations. So in the UK, for example, BIASA, the, the British and Irish Zoo Association, um, has information on how to, how to set about getting careers within the zoo industry. 
And I dare say there are similar things in the um, conservation organisations or the animal welfare organisations. So look them up as well and see what sorts of things they have online. So uh, I think there are more opportunities now, but of course, at the moment with COVID and so forth, it's um, a lot of those opportunities have, have closed down temporarily. So uh, uh, again, it's a difficult time, but I'm sure it'll all come on again um, as soon as we're through this. Yes, wonderful. And perhaps could you also talk a little bit to people who are listening, uh, perhaps already working in zoos or sanctuaries or wildlife centers, perhaps managers, curators who are interested um, or, you know, care staff who are interested to perhaps start research in zoos uh, in their facility, but they don't really know how to do that or how to, you know, create contacts with their local universities, what would be helpful in that domain? Uh, the, I, I would strongly encourage anyone that works in the um, in the zoo sector to do a bit of research if they get the opportunity. And uh, there are there are so many projects that can be done, and that the methodologies have been worked out in such detail over the last twenty years or so that it's now quite realistic for somebody to do opportunistic sampling of animal behaviour. And what I mean by that is that you don't have to commit like an hour a day for the next six months to watch that animal in that enclosure. Um, you can look for five minutes as you pass at different times every day. And all of these sorts of sources of data can add up for various things. And if anyone is seriously interested in doing that, um, again, within the UK, um, the British and Irish Association, IASA, if you go on their website, um, they have a section called Research Resources, and in there you will find the Zoo Research Handbook. And I keep pushing this partly because I'm one of the authors, although having said that, I don't get any money for it, so uh, I don't know why I'm pushing it. But I think it's worthwhile. It's a, it's a book that can be down, downloaded free of charge. You can download the whole book as a PDF, or you can download individual chapters as PDFs, and they tell you what the basics are of doing research, not just behavioral research, but any other kind of research. So if, for example, you're interested in um, the education of people in zoos and what they get out of seeing animals, there are, there are descriptions there about how you can set about doing that. Or if you're interested in nutrition research, there are, there's a chapter on how you can set about doing that. Uh, there is also a document in the research resources section in Biosa on how to, how to start doing research at all, because there is a, a drive really to try and encourage more research in the zoos. And, you know, we recognize the fact that a lot of people have never done research and it's a bit daunting to suddenly think, well, I want to do some research. I don't even know how to start doing it. Um, so there are, there are some sort of easy to get into research guides uh, to how you can get started. Now, because that's on the Biasa website, I know this is the British and Irish Association, but of course it's available worldwide. So anyone is very, very, you know, welcome to log on uh, and get those, uh, those bits of downloads. But on top of that as well, the Biasa Research Committee, which has produced all these documents, is very, very proactive 
but also very responsive. And uh, if you if you contact them, they will give you all sorts of advice about how to how to start off doing this stuff. Uh, it's it's not as difficult as it seems to get into doing this. And as you get into doing it, you realize more and more exactly what you can do. And I mean, to be honest, the uh, the idea of working in a zoo, I've never worked in a zoo formally. I've done a lot of research in zoos, but I've never been employed by one. Um, but the idea of having access to all those different animals, strange exotic species, things you've never heard of before, things that many people have never seen before, and certainly animals that nobody has ever studied before, the, the opportunities are enormous. So yes, I would strongly encourage anyone that, that feels they would like to take up with that um, to just start doing it. Um, but if you, if you don't live in the UK, um, there are zoo associations in uh, North America, for example, AZA, or uh, they, they like to call themselves AZA, but uh, they're wrong, it's AZA. Uh, they have all sorts of resources as well. EASA in Europe have all sorts of resources. So, um, so go online and look at them. But I would certainly point you in the direction of EASA to start because they've got these guides there and, uh, and just do it. Yes, absolutely. You're almost working for Nike, uh, but <laughs> yeah, so we'll definitely make links available uh, with the podcast description to the Biaza website and the resources and the committee so that people can check it out uh, after listening and becoming interesting because of course it's wonderful, like you say, to be able to, you know, collaborate and do research, especially also on animals that have been uh, studied uh, very little or not yet so very very exciting and you mentioned that you haven't um, worked in zoos uh, like being employed in zoos can you talk a little bit what type of jobs you have had and like also how you got to Bolton University oh I'm I'm afraid I'm one of those boring people that went up the academic route I had a brief period of about two years in between jobs when I did things like working in a in a baking factory and I worked in a um, an engineering factory as a wages clerk, and I worked partly as a, a sort of lorry driver for my brother-in-law for a while. Um, but mostly I've been in the academic sector. I had a short stint at Manchester Polytechnic, which is now the um, Manchester Metropolitan University. And I also had a short stint in Stockport College of Technology. But apart from that, I've been at Bolton since I was in my mid-20s. So my most of my academic career has been at Bolton. It was called Bolton Institute of Technology when I started there. Um, the people that founded it in a, a Bolton, for those people that are listening that have never heard of Bolton, because uh, I've discovered that most of the world has never heard of Bolton. Um, it's a biggish town in the north of England, and it has a it's an industrial town which built its fame and fortune on the textiles industry. And in the 60s, uh, Bolton Institute of Technology was set up with the intention of it becoming a polytechnic and then a university. Uh, it took a long time for it to become a university, but it became one about uh, 20 years ago, and it's now the University of Bolton. But it still has very much that, um, that tradition of I suppose educating people to degree level and beyond, but with a view to employment rather than 
sort of traditional academia. So it, it figures very heavily in terms of applied subjects. And when I got the job there in the mid 1970s, it was to teach in a science department to undergraduates doing biology and undergraduates doing psychology. So my job was to teach the psychologists some basic biology in the first year, a bit of neurophysiology, a bit of genetics, a bit of animal behavior, and then do more advanced behavioral biology in the second and third year. And uh, likewise for the biology students doing mostly behavioral biology and a bit of physiology thrown in, a bit of evolutionary biology thrown in, and a bit of systematics thrown in. So um, lots of interesting stuff to do there, but it was, uh, it was a very intensive work. Um, we had very, very high workloads. So it took a while before I could get some of the research going. And because a lot of my students were psychology students, the projects that the animal oriented ones wanted to do we're almost exclusively on primates. So we started doing research at Chester Zoo, which was the nearest zoo to us. And um, that was where we, we started really to become more interested in the animal welfare, um, because it, it occurred to us that looking at these animals in a zoo and scoring their behaviours did tell us something about the behaviours of those animals. But we started wondering then what the um, what the environment, the zoo environment, was was doing in the way of mo modifying that behaviour. And I suppose what we were interested in was to see whether some of the things we were seeing in the animals was an artefact of captivity, or whether it really was the sorts of behaviour that you would see that animal do in any other setting as well, for example, in the wild. Um, so we started looking at the zoo environment, and uh, one of the things we looked at was the, the presence of zoo visitors, that seemed to be an obvious thing to do, but nobody had really done it before. So uh, we set off doing that. And uh, now all these years later, still doing that. Excellent. Yes, we're definitely going to come back to human-animal interactions and visitor studies. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, you, you said you started working on primates at Chester, you know, what type of different topics have you studied or have your students studied? Because I'm sure you have had many masters and PhD students or bachelor projects, uh, maybe some other species that you've studied. Can you talk a little bit about the breadth and perhaps some examples of, of studies completed? Yes, I mean, the, um, the undergraduate projects that I've had have been very, very varied and not all of them have been zoo based. We've, we've had quite a few wild based ones as well. For example, we had a, a field site uh, up in the um, northwest of England uh, on an island where there was a very large seabird colony, uh, a mixed colony of herring gulls and lesser blackback gulls. And there were 120,000 of them there nesting. Um, between March and July every year. And we used to do field courses there and several students uh, ended up doing their project work up there as well. Um, and we did some lab-based stuff as well. We had a, a very small animal house with things like um, Siamese fighting fish and cichlids of various sorts, guppies, uh, and also invertebrates. And, and we had students doing work on those. 
And some of them were doing them out in the countryside around Bolton as well, more environmental things, ecological things. Um, but as far as the zoo stuff's concerned, um, we started off with a range of different subjects. So I had students looking at um, deer of various sorts because um, early on in my career, I saw myself as um, a deer specialist rather than a primate specialist. I did my PhD on road deer. Uh, in in a forest in the south of England, and uh, we sort of I carried that on with some of my students in the zoo setting, looking at spotted deer and Bear uh, David's deer and uh, species like that. I also had some students doing work on small carnivores. Uh, in those days, there were quite a good selection of small carnivores in zoos. You don't see so many these days because. Um, a lot of the zoos decided around about the 1980s that it was best not to keep some of these species because they showed so many um, apparently abnormal behaviours in captivity. But there was a good selection of small felids, for example, at Chester, and we had students doing work on those. But gradually, um, we gravitated onto the, the primates. And uh, I've always been fascinated by lemurs, and uh, I would have loved to have done my PhD on lemurs, but... Um, it wasn't possible, so I did deer instead. But uh, I thought, well, let's go back and look at the, the lemurs with our zoo work. And I was very fortunate in the late 1980s that Bolton Institute was um, trying to become a university, and it had to jump through various hoops to get there. One of them was to increase its research output. Um, so the Institute put up some funding for anyone that wanted to apply for it from within the university um, to fund a speci you know, specific projects that had a chance of producing some research papers. And I managed to get some funding to go to Duke University in North Carolina, which is the, the sort of premier center for captive lemurs in the whole world. And the people there were, were brilliant. And uh, I met one person in particular, Frances White, who's no longer there, she's moved on to another university now, but she encouraged me to try and get some funding to go and work in Madagascar on wild lemurs, um, and that she and other people in the university had a, a sort of setup at Madagascar where, where they could support us in terms of logistics, you know, having a field site and, uh, and campsites and things like that. So when I came back to Bolton, I applied for funding and I got funding for my first full-time research student who went to Madagascar and studied roughed lemurs at Ranamathan National Park. And she was doing a hybrid zoo wild study. So she was looking at their behavior in the wild, looking at their behavior in zoos, looking to see what was different about them and then using environmental enrichment to bring the behavior of the zoo lemurs more like that of the wild ones. And after that, we managed a few more students in, uh, in Madagascar as well, but um, all of them looking at lemurs. And Frankie went on to do postdoctoral work there as well on the small carnivores, um, particularly the, um, the Fanaluk, the, uh, the, what's called the Madagascar civet, um, which... She was radio collaring them uh, in, a, in a forest in Madagascar and doing work on that. So the Madagascar work was lovely, but uh, eventually we found it just too difficult to, um, to sustain that. 
But um, I also had some students doing other stuff. I had a student um, who did uh, a study of chimpanzees, for example, and comparing um, artificially reared, you know, hand-reared animals with uh, group-reared animals, uh, mother-reared animals. And those that were hand-reared were animals that had been brought up in laboratories or in circuses or, or some artificial way and had ended up in the zoo. And she did this in several different zoos, looking for differences between um, what these animals were like um, as adult animals, having had those different sorts of background. And I had students looking at, um, uh, what are they, the, uh, the Gwenans, the, the African uh, forest monkeys, uh, again in captivity, and also at spider monkeys. So, you know, a variety of different things, but it, it sort of gravitated uh, ultimately around looking at primates. And again, that was concordant with the fact that a lot of these were students coming from a psychology background rather than a biology background. Wonderful. And of course, you have traveled to Madagascar and seen lemurs there. Oh, that was uh, that was one of the high spots of my life. You know, uh, um, uh, after getting married, I suppose this was the next high spot of my life. Uh, I'd always wanted to go to Madagascar and always wanted to see lemurs in the wild. And when Frankie went out there to start her PhD, I went out a couple of months later to visit her at Ranama Farm. But I also got the opportunity to go to Perinay and see the injuries. And uh, oh, even now I can, I, getting up at dawn and walking down that road to Perinay Forest and hearing the injuries calling, it, it was absolutely terrific. It was one of the one of the most amazing experiences. Um, but even down in Ranamathan, I mean, it was a, <clears throat> an awful trek through the forest and uh, I'm not a particularly fit person. And I, 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 thought, I thought Frankie was trying to kill me at one stage, but uh, we got to her campsite in the middle of the forest. It was pouring with rain every day. We were in the middle of the rainy season. We set up the, the tents, there were leeches everywhere. Oh, it was uh, miserable. And then the first night I was there, uh, a ring-tailed mongoose, a galidia, came into the camp and potted around and then went again. And then about half an hour later, some red-bellied lemurs came. And I thought, wow, this is fabulous. And with, within the space of just that first evening, um, we had about five or six different species of mammals came close to the camp and I was able to see them in the wild. And it was, it was absolutely brilliant, fabulous experience. Wonderful. I just saw online uh, on Google Scholar, I think it was, or Facebook, somebody posted about injury song publication that, uh, that they just put out. So uh, I've never heard them, but uh, it sounds absolutely fabulous and so magical that, you know, suddenly, you know, I'm sure the things about leeches and everything else just becomes... Like, yeah, not, not such a big deal. Yeah, yeah you put up with that. You put yeah. up with that. But the, the injuries, I mean, uh, if, if, you're ever, if you're ever able to, I would certainly recommend going down to Perinay and visiting the, uh, the injuries. Um, there are very few forests that still have injuries, but Perinay is well on the tourist route. Um, so there are several animals there that are reasonably well habituated and the local guides can find them and take you to see them. And just walking down there at dawn, 
the call is a very sort of ethereal, um, quite almost supernatural sound, and it, uh, it carries for a long, long way. And it sounds very otherworldly, but very, very distinctive. They are lovely animals, well worth seeing. And it's an animal that you're never likely to see in a zoo because uh, so far nobody has ever been able to keep them in captivity. Wonderful. We'll make sure there's a link to the sounds of injuries so that people can go and, uh, and listen yes. to them. Yeah, animal sounds are amazing. So you already talked about studying human-animal interactions um, briefly about visitors, but you've done actually quite a lot of work in this domain, visitors, but also keepers uh, from, you know, interactions, relationships, bonds. Can you talk a little bit about uh, or the effects of people being there or not there, weekends? Can you talk a little bit to your work in the animal, the human-animal interaction sphere, please? Yes, we, we started off by um, wondering whether having people there, having the um, zoo visitors there, um, was affecting the animal's behavior. And we, we decided that, you know, it would be probably inconceivable that it wasn't having some effect on the animals. Um, we weren't actually the first to do that. We were one of the first to do it, but I must give credit to uh, Angela Gladstone at um, Rotterdam Zoo. She did the first study really on a group of um, cotton-top tamarins that were off show. Um, in comparison with a group that were on show. But I think we were we were amongst the first to, to look alive at um, what the animals were doing while there were audiences there. And you know, I suppose, in a way, you have to remember that this was in the early 1980s, and the enclosures that we were looking at were very different then from what they are now. Um, the animals at, in the monkey house at Chester Zoo had indoor enclosures which were glass fronted and there was nowhere in that enclosure that the animal could hide. The, the furniture was fairly minimal. They had an outdoor enclosure as well that they could go out into and that was a little bit better um, but still not so many places for the animal to hide and the enclosures by modern standards were quite small. That was a, a house that was built in the 1950s and it was state-of-the-art when it was built um, but Chester knew that it you know things had moved on it had been superseded and uh, they renovated it and rebuilt it uh, in the 1990s and it's it's an excellent um, uh, accommodation for these animals now but uh, there have been a lot of studies since a lot of people have done these sort of studies um, students in particular doing final honors projects um, often gravitate to this sort of study and I think it's because it is something that's doable um, within the time and opportunity constraints that they've got. Um, they know they will get an answer um, without having to generate masses and masses and masses of data. And quite a few of these end up being published as well. So there's now quite a lot of publications on the effect of zoo visitors. And I've not formally done a, a sort of review of all of these things recently but my impression is that nowadays the enclosures are so good and the animals are so habituated nearly all of these animals are zoo born these days um, that the zoo visitors are not really causing too much of a problem for them i think there can be a problem if people 
are noisy and try and bang the glass or attract the animals like that. But I think in general, the animals are, are pretty cool about the fact that there are these people there. Um, but I would also direct you to um, my colleague, Sam Ward at um, Nottingham Trent University. And she's part of a team at the moment who are looking to see how the animals are changing their behavior during lockdown when the zoos are closed. And uh, their first paper, uh, I think, is available at the moment in early view in applied animal behavior science. So, uh, you know, there are, there are people looking to see all these different factors and how they come together. And I think what I would say is that um, there are species differences. Some animals are, are more affected by zoo visitors than others, but there are also things like personality differences, um, differences in enclosures. And I, I think really um, for most of these animals, the disturbance is, is fairly minimal. But of course, we were quite interested as well that to look and see, well, these are people that the animals are not familiar with, and uh, you would expect that to be a bit of disruption. But what about the other people that animals are familiar with? We'd expect that to change behavior as well, um, but in maybe a more positive way. So we started looking at keepers as well. And uh, again, there's been quite a lot of research effort uh, more globally on that more recently, and quite a lot of good research being done now on um, keeper animal relationships and the general consensus at the moment is that a good quality keeper animal relationship leads to enhanced animal welfare and our hope has always been that some of that spills over to make it more tolerable for the animals to put up with people that they don't know the the, the zoo visitors the public uh, if they have that good relationship with their keeper as well and the one or two papers that have been looking at that seem to support that idea. So yes, it's a, it, it's a very interesting area to be in and uh, it's one that can be approached from a number of points of view. We've looked at it from the point of view of survey um, using questionnaires, but we've also done a bit of um, life study um, where we're treating the keeper as, as if they are an animal and scoring their behavior as well. And there are all these different approaches that, that get you to, to some interesting answers. Lovely. Can you talk a little bit about how you have used or, you know, you and your colleagues have used records uh, to understand human-animal interactions or relationships? Oh, yes. I mean, the, um, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic resource that most zoos have kept records sometimes quite detailed records for a long, long time. When we first started looking at zoo records, they were still paper records. And, you know, you'd go along to the primate house and the keeper would give you a big stack of um, file cards and you'd, you'd look through them trying to find births and deaths and things like that. Of course, it's all computerized now. And uh, more recently still, it's gone on to Zims. So uh, we now have uh, web-based records for these zoos. We've, we've tried looking at some of these data to answer behavioral questions. To be honest, it's, uh, it's not really suited for answering behavioral questions. If you have life history questions where the data that you're looking at are going to be things like longevity, 
or body mass index or growth rates or numbers of offspring, those sorts of life history variables, if, if those are your dependent variables, then you can, you can get very, very good data uh, out of the zoo records. Uh, for behavioral data, it's a lot more patchy because these are data that are not systematically collected. Uh, we have managed a little bit using data from Chester Zoo to look at aggressions that cause damage to an animal that warrants bringing a vet in because those are systematically recorded. And we've also looked at the days that animals give birth on, and we've done that across a number of zoos, um, testing the theory really that um, maybe these animals adjust when they're going to give birth according to the crowding of the zoo by, by visitors. So um, the hypothesis was that on weekends, when there are large numbers of visitors in the zoo, uh, the animals delay their births until um, Monday or Tuesday. And we know from the agricultural industry that animals are able to do this. They're able to manipulate the timing of their birth. And uh, what we found was that um, for the big range of animals we looked at, they weren't doing that. Um, the, the zoo visitors weren't affecting them, which is good news. Um, it means that they're not being disturbed unduly. Um, by the presence of zoo visitors. But I think unless you have something that you know that the keepers and the managers at the zoo are going to collect information on in a systematic way, then it becomes very difficult to use those. But if anybody does want to use zoo data, uh, the way to do it is to, um, to contact Species 360 and uh, ask them if you can submit a proposal for research and they, if they approve that, they will give you the data from all of these computerized data logs from all the zoos that are members of Species 360, which is most of them. And uh, you can then do all the analyses. Getting through all of that system is difficult and you have to be uh, a proper accredited researcher in a way, um, but there are ways of doing that. So the amount of information that's available now is huge compared to like 20 or 30 years ago and so much more accessible. So again, it opens up lots more new channels for doing innovative research. And I think that's important now because one of the things that concerns me about um, the zoo welfare research is that we still don't have any kind of overarching theory about zoo animal research as opposed to animal welfare research in general. And what I mean by that is that we have very good ideas about animal welfare. And a lot of that has come from the agricultural industry, but we have a good idea about uh, the things that are important to animals, how we, can, how we can test those things, how we can make environments better for them. But in the zoo, we've got so many species that have not really been looked at before. And I think we're entering a period worldwide where we might be required to bring more and more um, unusual species into captivity just to help them survive until we can sort out what we're doing with the biosphere and stop the way that we're damaging it. 
Now, if we're bringing animals into captivity that we don't know very much about, we're then faced with the idea that, okay, we might be able to feed them all right, and we might be able to keep them alive and in good spirits and everything, but we don't know very much about what it takes to enhance their welfare. And if we can get some kind of overarching idea of the principles behind being able to predict what an, a, a largely unknown animal might do in captivity and what, what might be important for it in captivity, then we can make things better from them from the very beginning. And I think the, the way of doing that is the way that we've been shown by people like Georgia Mason, who did the, um, that fabulous study on carnivore pacing behavior. And she's shown some of the biological things which are part of the evolutionary heritage of these animals that predispose them to do an abnormal behavior like pacing. Now, if we turn that round and look at the positive indicators of welfare, um, like for example, play, then what can we find in the biological makeup of all these animals? that might predispose them to thrive in a, in a captive environment as measured by their ability and the amount of time they spend doing things like playing. And if we can get some kind of principles behind that, so we can say, well, animals that are a bit like this in the wild will be a bit like this in captivity, then I think that's what we want to aim for. And I think using those sorts of records that Species 360 have is the way of doing that and uh, you know I'm hoping to be involved in a bit of that kind of research myself with Sam Ward so uh, we're looking at the possibility of doing things with that now so yes exciting times absolutely and lots of really wonderful nuggets there for people who are interested to look at doing research and that's just wonderful. And you've been, you know, writing a lot, lots of peer-reviewed publications. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, in the last minutes of this podcast, about your your books and uh, collaborations and publications? Oh, the books. Um, yeah, I mean, the one I'm, <coughs> pardon me, excuse me, uh, the one I'm particularly proud of is the Zoo Animals book. Um, we decided, I, I did that really with Vicky Melfi, we decided back in the early 2000s that, that one, we wanted that to be the next thing we would do. And uh, we discovered that Sheila Pankhurst was thinking along similar signs. So we, we joined together and we wrote it as a threesome. And that came out in 2009. And the second edition came out in 2013. Uh, it's been for us a phenomenal success. Um, it was written particularly for two goals, really, two intended readerships. One was zoo professionals, um, and the other one was students, undergraduate and postgraduate students, and academics that wanted to do zoo research. But of course, those are very, very different audiences that have different sorts of backgrounds in the subject, but also have different um, wishes, I suppose, of what they want to get out of a book like that. And uh, without wishing to sound too, uh, too vain about this, I think we did a really good job of um, bringing enough together in such a way that it satisfied both of those groups. And we've been very proud of, of that book. And it's lovely now to go to a university and find that this is the 
course textbook for their zoo biology course or go to a zoo and see it on the curator's bookshelf behind him. It's uh, it's a lovely feeling. And around the world as well, you know, in North America, in China, in Japan, and in Australia, we, we see this book there as well. And we're currently working on the third edition for that, which we're hoping will be um, on the shelves in time for the academic year 2022 to 23. But uh, I'm also very proud of the Anthrozoology book, you know, which is uh, an edited book with some fantastic authors that have written chapters for that, uh, which look really at what we know about human-animal relationships and human-animal interactions across the whole spectrum of where people come into contact with animals. So in the past, people have tended to concentrate on, for example, agricultural animals, or on companion animals. But of course, we're coming into contact with animals, not just in the home, not just in agriculture, but in laboratories, in zoos, in the wild, in the urban wild, we come into contact with animals more and more. And of course, we have interactions with them. And sometimes we have some kind of relationship with them as well. So we managed to assemble a brilliant team of authors to look at all of those different scenarios. And that's the answer zoology book. So uh, anyone that's listening to this that's not familiar with these books, go to the Oxford University Press website and buy them. They are well worth reading. Absolutely. And we'll make sure also again to link to the books in the podcast description. So it's very easy for people to look at them. And uh, the second edition that came out, of course, had a lemur on it. It did. Uh, so it, it, yeah, so uh, looking forward to the first one had a beautiful giraffe. And then, of course, we are holding our breath to see what and uh, who will be on uh, on the third edition. So uh, well, when we, when we had the first edition published, the publisher, Oxford University Press, chose what was going on the cover and it was a giraffe. But on the second edition, we decided, no, we're going to have our animals on. So I went first and I got the lemur. The next one is supposed to be Vicky's choice, would probably be a Sluazy black-crested macaque, but she sneaked that onto the cover of the Anthrozoology book. So I think she forfeits the cover of the Zoo Animals book, in which case it might be down to Sheila and her animal is a, is a Mara, but I don't think Maras really capture the imagination in the way that the lemur does. So I think we might be thinking again about that. Another lemur. <laughs> Oh, wouldn't that be good? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll just uh, we'll see um, when it comes out. It will be will be a wonderful surprise. So yeah, you know, so I hope it is not a surprise to us. <laughs> no, no, I hope not. I, I hope you have full control over that. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about? Uh, so, you and I have worked uh, a little bit on on dolphins and uh, yes. just general marine mammal related research. Can you uh, share a little bit about that um, in conclusion before, of course, hopefully you have a, also a, a very nice or, or fun animal story for us in conclusion. <laughs> oh, well, I, I've, I've really enjoyed the dolphin work. I mean, I, I've never, never really thought that I would be working with marine mammals. <clears throat> and uh, the opportunity came, of course, through, uh, through working with you. And uh, it was brilliant. The, uh, the workout at Curacao, um, I still call it Curacao, but uh, I guess I'm wrong about that. But uh, wherever it was, Curacao, 
Um, that was that was really fabulous. And uh, seeing the dolphins and being able to get some data on the dolphins and test some theories about uh, about their welfare in relation to uh, to, to people uh, was really really good. And I am very aware of the fact that um, you know even keeping some of these marine mammals in captivity can be contentious for a lot of people and uh, i think my answer to that is well you know they are there and they are going to be there for some time so it, we're duty bound really to uh, to look and see what's the best welfare we can give to these animals and uh, I've been very pleased to be part of that. So, uh, so yes, I mean, I, I managed to avoid not falling into the water with them and, uh, you know, or getting bitten or anything like that. But uh, really, really lovely, lovely to meet the dolphins. I'm a little bit in awe of dolphins because uh, I think they're very clever, but a bit inscrutable. It's hard to know what's going through their minds, but um, that's the primatologist speaking. So, uh, so I'm probably quite wrong about that. Yes, well, I guess, you know, it's always uh, harder if you, like for me, it's very easy to, you know, look at dolphins or other marine mammals that I'm very comfortable working with, you know, yes. who's who and, uh, you know, what might be going on and being more familiar yes. with their facial expressions and obviously limitations to uh, facial expressions like in dolphins. Uh, but, um, and that of course, you know, is different when we work with different species, but I am certainly enjoying very much uh, the work that we have done in Curaçao with the dolphins, but uh, also the, you know, the review that we're doing right now on marine yes. And Yeah, it's really, and I, I remember us visiting the dolphinarium in Hardebeik and this important, oh, yes. like you have been talking about, you know, different disciplines and different, you know, areas and fields of animal care and welfare and what, how they can help or support each other or how they are yes. different from each other. And um, you had such a great talk there, you know, about mainly terrestrial animals, but, you know, about a topic that, of course, is very relevant also in the marine mammal world. So I thought that was really, really great. Uh, I really enjoyed that trip to Heart of Ike. And one of the one of the things that that sort of stayed in my mind afterwards was being shown those porpoises that had been um, washed up on the beach. They'd been stranded on the beaches. And uh, I never realised until then that the beaches, the North Sea beaches in um, the Netherlands are, are very shallow. And um, it's almost as if the animals get stranded almost accidentally. But I remember... Um, I can't remember who it was that uh, that told us now. Pauline, I think, wasn't it? Uh, told us that one of the animals, while it was stranded, had started to be nibbled by a fox and it was still alive and had lost part of one of its flippers. And they were rehabilitating these porpoises and there's no way this one could ever go back to the wild. And uh, so they were going to keep this, uh, this, this porpoise with just one fin. And I remember thinking, you know, we don't have a facility like this in the United Kingdom. There is nobody that has expertise and um, facilities for keeping a stranded cetacean in captivity. Um, so thank goodness that in the Netherlands there, there is a place like Hardebeck that can do that. And I've since read about um, other stranded cetaceans in North America um, that have been you know, brought into 
to captivity, looked after, and very often released back into the wild. And you think, well, none of this would be possible if those facilities weren't there. So I think, you know, the whole issue about um, marine mammals in captivity is a very complex one. And, uh, and I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want anyone to just take a very simplistic view of, of, of things like that. Yes, indeed. Well said, well said. And in conclusion, you know, do you have an, an interesting or like, um, you know, fun story or something where you made a discovery or you saw something or experienced something with an animal, like in conclusion to share where you're like, oh, yeah, I, I, I want to tell that story. I don't think I have. I can tell you about the most bizarre research I've ever done. Yes, which was please. racing cockroaches and centipedes down an arena with an audience. And this was when some of my psychology students got interested in social facilitation. Apparently, one of the main theories of social facilitation was built on studies of cockroaches, which run faster when other cockroaches watch them. And we decided to do this as well. We set it all up in a in a dark room and uh, and and had these cockroaches racing down an arena with uh, an audience of several hundred cockroaches clapping them on. And uh, we actually generated a paper out of that, not with the cockroaches, but with some centipedes. And uh, those are the only animals I've ever done research on that are invertebrates. And uh, it it seemed quite bizarre at the time, and it was very much a one-off, but very enjoyable. Excellent. We'll definitely have to link to the centipede paper. And I think, we need, <laughs> you know, to invite you back on another podcast to hear more about cockroach racing and being clapped on by an audience of cockroaches <laughs> in an arena. That's really wonderful. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being on the podcast, talking about human animal relationships, the importance of also learning from the wild and seeing how can that information help us to modify, amend, and promote uh, opportunities for animals in human care. Of course, your love for lemurs and the beautiful Indris singing and research, just do it. So thanks yes. so much, uh, Jeff. You're very welcome. The podcast. So, this was already the end of another wonderful podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on. Well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.